Welcome to the program. Today is our angel investor and street smart startup show. How does a startup get bought? What are some successful stories and horror stories from being an angel investor? Today we have John Greathouse of Rincon Venture Partners. Our interview is going to be coming up in just a moment and we'll discuss the finance principle of guidance. I have a few examples I think you can appreciate. We do put this show on iTunes. You can find us by searching Big Money in the 805. You can also find each previous show in the show notes and on my website. Marinantha.com. Next week, we will have pro surfer Mary Osborne in the studio. She is a Ventura native, followed up by Marlis Oster, the CEO of Visit Ventura, and then Dina Jensen of CLU's Center for Nonprofit Leadership. Please be sure to join us. Michael Anderson is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Marinantha Financial. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Marinantha's investments on this program. All opinions expressed by participants on this program are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Maranatha Financial or its affiliates. For more information, visit Maranatha.com. It's time for Big Money in the 805 with your host, Michael Anderson. Michael always works in his client's best interest when it comes to their financial life and future. To reach Michael, go to Maranatha.com. And now, here's your host for Big Money, Michael Anderson. Today's feature interview is brought to you by Geico Local Office Car and Homeowners Insurance for the 805. You could save up to 15%. Call 805-487-7847. Geico Local Office. We have with us John Greathouse, contributor to Forbes Magazine, partner at Rincon Venture Partners, angel investor, advisor, and board member with numerous startups. John is a CPA, and he holds an MBA from the Wharton School. He's on faculty with UCSB in their technology management program, teaching entrepreneurial courses. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. You know, you're doing so much in this entrepreneurial startup space. You're writing for Forbes. You're teaching classes. You're investing as an angel investor. How did you get into this? How did you become an angel investor? I self-identify as an entrepreneur. I was that kid in the front yard selling Kool-Aid and popcorn and embarrassing my parents by doing it every weekend. And to me, it was just sort of natural. I didn't understand why other kids weren't doing it. You know, I'd buy the bubble yum at the 7-Eleven and sell it on the bus with like a 10x markup. That was me. But, you know, I did a couple of startups in town with some great teams and had some success. And I was fortunate that a number of the folks I had done companies with wanted to go off and and do subsequent companies, and they were kind enough to let me invest. And some of those turned out to be, you know, really nice investments. And through that process, I would join a board or be an advisor, and, and realized it was a good next chapter for me. So after being really just six days a week, seven days a week entrepreneur, the next phase of my life at that point, I was about 42, I guess, or 41. Took a couple of years off, came out of it sort of slowly, working as an advisor here, an advisor there, and I found that I liked that role. So some entrepreneurs can't make that transition to being a coach. They have to be on the field. They have to be, you know, 120%. For me, it, it worked really well. I got a lot of vicarious enjoyment out of helping the folks, but I didn't feel like I had to be there, you know, running the place. When we talk about being an advisor for a startup, what does that look like? What are the things that you're doing and the value you're adding as an advisor? It's funny, without trying to sound flippant, part of what you do is really, you're just a therapist because there are some situations where the founder, or maybe it's multiple founders, they have no one else they can talk to even at their own company. So there might be an issue with a senior executive that wouldn't be appropriate to talk to other senior executives about, but they can 
talk to me. They can talk to a board member. Maybe there's an issue with another board member. That would be a sensitive thing. You couldn't talk about at a board meeting. Maybe they've talked to me. So I do a lot of just being a sounding board, giving them uh, my advice, giving them my counsel. I also do a lot of, in the early stages, I'm helping with recruiting. Uh, I just came back from San Diego and I was interviewing some people for a couple of the startups down there that I'm helping. And that's just another filter for them. They might have two or three people that are finalists for a job. And I've hired a bunch of people over the years. So it's just good to get another person's perspective. It's not as if I can tell them yes or no, this is the right person, but at least I can give them another opinion. Let's talk about how you decide if a startup is a good fit for you, if you're going to invest in them or not, and be an advisor for them to help them out. What filter do you use or process do you have to evaluate that? For me, it comes down to the people because we focus on a very specific market. So I don't have to spend a lot of time believing in the market. Um, If I was a much more broad-based investor, I would have to say, well, okay, wait a minute, you're doing this medical device. Let me learn a little bit about that space. Or you're doing this artificial intelligence thing. Let me learn about that. We focus on B2B, which is business to business SaaS, which is software as a service. So we're doing B2B software as a service. And then all I need to do is really look at those verticals and see if I believe the market's big enough. That piece of our diligence is, is not major. For some venture capitalists, that's a big part of what they do. So because that's not really a huge part of our of our equation, and we do have to look at the markets, obviously, and, and understand competitors and all of that, but a lot of our time is on the people. We, we have to ask ourselves, are is this the team that we think will win in this space? We like the space. We think the space is going to grow. We think there's money to be made there. But are these the folks that can get the job done? So spending a lot of time on that. And the reason for that is we are going to a lot of time together. Well, I'm talking about six, seven, eight, nine years together where we're going to be working pretty closely, making some tough decisions. And the chemistry has to be good at the beginning. If it's not good at the beginning, it typically doesn't get better over time. So that, that's where it's got to work for the entrepreneur and it's got to work for me. We all watch that show, The Shark Tank. And how is that similar or different to what you're doing? I mean, when we watch it on TV, it looks like they're trying to make these decisions so quickly. And a lot of stuff I think goes on behind the scenes. But is that anything like what it is? is in real life or is it very different? No. In fact, I wrote an article uh, for the Wall Street Journal just pointing out some of the differences in uh, Mark Cuban got angry and went into a Twitter flurry, which I think all he did was push more people to the article. But no, it's not real at all. And and I've had people, I've had friends that were judges on Shark Tank. I've had friends that were um, on Shark Tank. And actually, in one case, judges were going to give them a million dollars. It never happened. Like most of those deals, I shouldn't say most, I can't speak with that authority. A lot of the deals that you see on TV don't actually become funded for a variety of reasons. It's very, very artificial. But one thing that's interesting is you see the, I I don't watch the show very often, but you know, it's the little snippets, like maybe 10 minutes or something, they're pretty short. In real life, to the Shark Tank team's credit, the actual interviews are hours long. In many cases, you're there for two or three hours. So they do ask pretty in-depth questions, certainly not a farce. I mean, they are investors, but it's just not that way. I mean, in real life, that process takes months. Um, as I just said, I want to get to know you. You need to get to know me. You don't get to know somebody even in a couple hours. The process is very, very different in real life. Right. So here in the 805, I know we have an, a pretty active entrepreneurial community. How vibrant is it from your perspective? As I mentioned, you just got back from San Diego. I think San Diego is about eight, ten years behind us. I feel like it was Santa Barbara maybe, uh, maybe ten years ago. Uh, and I'm not saying that to besmirch them. I think San Diego is going to be an incredible startup community, and they've had huge wins, of course, in telecom and, and healthcare. But in the software side of the business, I think they're a little bit behind us. So I think Santa Barbara is is being recognized across uh, California and to some extent across the country 
as being a place to park your money. So if you look at the venture capitalists that we have putting money in deals in Santa Barbara, it's names like Benchmark and Kosala, Index, Bessemer, uh, Andreessen Horowitz just put money in Appeal, Excels in a couple deals here, Upfront in a couple deals, Boundary Group is here. So if you look at the who's who of venture capital, these are big firms with a lot of money that you know, really pick their bet well. They're putting their money in here. So what, what that ends up doing is once a partner has one investment in a specific geography, they're inclined to do more investments because they're already going to fly here. They already have to be here for board meetings. It's much easier for them to meet entrepreneurs, have coffee with an entrepreneur when they're visiting a board meeting, and then go ahead and invest in that company. And now they can have a couple board meetings in the same town, just more efficient. But until you get the first couple brand name VCs to come to your town, it's just hard to break that ice. And what, as a region here in the 805, what could we do to be more supportive of having these venture capitalists do more investment in our area? Oh, man, that's a big question. I think the entrepreneurial ecosystem is doing everything it can do. I think certainly the local politicians, I think, could just gain a better understanding of what, you know, what would be helpful to businesses. I think in many cases, they truly want to be helpful. They just don't know what to do. And in some cases, they're not helpful. I mean, I, it, one of the companies I was involved with, we sold it to Citrix. Citrix wanted to build um, a headquarters here in town. They wanted to own the building and build it. And they finally just threw up their hands because, the, you know, the local municipality, <laughs> bureaucrats or whatever, just kept throwing up roadblocks. And we ended up losing that company, logged me in, ended up acquiring Citrix, and is now moving you know, some of the folks out of town. I think just having a bit of a more open mind about how expensive and difficult it can be to grow a sizable business in the Central Coast and trying to help those companies like a Procore or a Citrix that are breakout companies that want to hire a thousand people. How do you help them do that? Let's talk about where the future is taking us with some of the new technologies that are coming out. What are some things that you see in, in that area? So I actually teach a class at UCSB, and part of what I talk about is the future of entrepreneurship. So certainly not an expert in that in that space, but I have thought a little bit about it and talked to my students about it. There's actually a good book I'll recommend. I'm, I'm no dog in the fight. I don't know the author or anything, but there's a book called Industries of the Future by Alec Ross, R-O-S-S. He worked at the State Department under um, Mrs. Clinton, and he's, his job was to travel the world and look at tech, emerging technologies all over the world and come back and report to the State Department how technologies would have an impact globally. So he had a really interesting job. He took all that information and he wrote a book called Industries of the Future. He looks at, I think he looks at eight different industries and talks about how each of them is going to be transformative. I think none of us really realize how big this disruption that's coming is going to be. We, we'll, we'll read an article here, we'll read an article there, but it's going to be really massive. And, and I'm not a doom and gloom kind of guy. I'm an optimist. I think with new solutions come new problems and new challenges. So what I encourage my students to do is, is look around the corner. Look, there's something called the hummingbird effect where you try to guess what, not the not the immediate effect is going to be because everybody can figure that out. What's the secondary or tertiary effect going to be? I'll give you an example. So autonomous vehicles. If I ask you, okay, what's, you know, what are some of the effects of autonomous vehicles? You probably say, well, we're going to have fewer truck drivers. Yeah, we're going to have a lot fewer truck drivers. What else? What else has been happening with when most vehicles and soon and someday all vehicles are self-driving? And when you start to drill down on that question, you, you start to discover some really interesting things that are less obvious. I'll give you one, for instance. Folks in the medical world are thinking we're going to have a lot fewer, this is a little bit morbid, but it's true, we're going to have a lot fewer organs that are going to be donated because many of those organs come from healthy people that were one of the 30,000 people that are killed every year in automobile accidents. That accident rate is going to go way down. So the need for artificial organs is going to go way up. How are we going to, how are we going to supplant this reduction? What about um, other jobs that will be lost, such as highway patrolmen? If everyone's going to speed limit, do we really need people sitting on the side of the road with a radar gun trying to catch people? Well, probably not. What are people going to do with the hundreds of hours 
of time that they're going to get back in their lives. So now people listen to the radio or they'll listen to podcasts or they'll do things like that in the car. But what if you could do pretty much anything in your car while you're commuting? So who's going to fill that void? Is it just going to be vapid entertainment or is there something else that can, that can fill that void? So these are the sorts of questions I ask my students to, to, to contemplate. But getting back to the calamity, I think students, young people are going to be fine. I think people that are older are just going to retire because it's going to, you know, they're just not going to be able to adapt. The people that are 35 to 50-ish, I think are really going to struggle. It's going to be, everyone talked about what happened in that last election with the people that were sort of left behind. It, I think it's going to be much bigger than that. That's really fascinating. And I, it's kind of on the tracks as it were coming down. What skills, like for the students that are there now, what skills do you mm-hmm. think are really important and a big value for the kids to learn today? I'm a big fan of life skills. <laughs> and so I teach a class in sales and we, we focus on, we don't focus on like how to close a sale. We focus on influence and persuasion. Like what are the six principles of influence and persuasion that, that, you know, that psychologists have known about for hundreds of years? Cialdini is one of the, the folks we, we look at. Is, you know, he's written a couple of pretty pivotal books in the space. And we break it down by understanding those influence persuasion techniques. Makes you a better consumer because you run, you understand when a marketer is trying to influence you. But it also makes you, I think, a more compatible person with your roommates, with your parents, with your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever. It's just that give and take that happens in natural, the natural course of life is something we should all be better at. So that's one thing. I really have them work on their influence persuasion skills. I think every student should learn how to sell, even if they don't want to be a salesperson. They should just go out there and, and push themselves to do it. If they want to be an entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable selling. You have to be comfortable asking for money for your product. If you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you're a sculptor, I mean, at some point, you have to get paid for the value you're creating, and you have to be comfortable asking for the money for that. And I think some basic level of coding, I think that's been overplayed, I think, in the media a little bit, that everyone needs to be a coder. I don't believe that, but I think a basic understanding of the coding process, so that if you do end up working with some technical people, you have an appreciation for what they're doing, and you're in a better position to help them do it uh, more effectively. I also push presentation skills. I find our students are, you know, they're really good at uh, 140-character tweets, but they're not necessarily very compelling when they stand up in front of a small group. And again, in the workplace of the future, you're going to be doing a lot of influence and persuading in a small group setting. So you need to be comfortable doing it. You need to understand how to create presentation materials that are compelling and that will grab people's attention. And then basic accounting, because that is the language of business. So even if you're not going to be an accountant, even if you don't think that's going to be a big part of your life, understanding basic financial statements is hugely important. We're talking with John Greathouse, teacher at UCSB for the Entrepreneurial Program and contributor to Forbes magazine. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one more question. Best investment or worst investment? And by the way, a good friend of mine, uh, Robin Campbell, also teaches at the program up there. He shared with me that you passed on investing in Uber. Oh, yeah. Hey, I've got got plenty I passed on. (laughs) Um, Yeah, best investment is like asking me which of my kids are the cutest. I mean, they're all like really cute and I love them all. So I don't really have like a, a best investment. We have had some really nice successes for our teams and the people we invested in. We sold a company to Apple. We sold a company to Google. You know, we sold a couple other ones. Critio bought one of our companies. And all of those outcomes were good for, for everyone involved. Funny that you mentioned Uber. So I, I'm very open about that. I wrote an article, widely distributed. I got a lot of feedback about Uber. Um, I talked about why I didn't make the investment. I also uh, wrote an article about why I didn't invest in Twilio. Twilio, you know, the public company, it's worth several billion dollars. I actually met the founder and he later told me it was his very first pitch, literally the first pitch that he gave to anybody about that company that was worth billions of dollars later was to me and, and, and my partner. And 
And there was good reasons why I said no, and I wrote about it in the article. You know, Mind Body is another company that's done very, very well. Hope Loaf was another one that I didn't invest in that did well. It's not really, that's not really the right measure for an investor. It's not the deals you didn't do. It, what about the deals you did do? I mean, did, if you're doing a lot of deals that um, are doing, that did okay, that did well, that beat the industry standard, then you're still a success. But yeah. you're going to say no to deals that are good. That's, right. If you're in the business of investing and you're doing your job of getting good deal flow, you're going to see a lot of deals that are good. You, you just can't do them all. Well, John, thank you so much for being here today. I hope you'll come join us again sometime soon. You can follow John, johngreathouse.com. You can go to his website. We'll have a link in the show notes. Thanks so much, John. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Now it's time for the Nonprofit Spotlight with your host, Michael Anderson, on Big Money in the 805. Nonprofit Spotlight. Here's a local group we want you to know about. Nonprofit Spotlight, brought to you by Pierpont Racquet Club, serving Ventura since 1977. Get your 30 day pass online. Visit pierpontrc.com. Today, our Nonprofit Spotlight is with Jill Santos of Food Forward. They operate in Ventura County. And there are one in seven people here in Southern California that are food insecure. Jill is here to tell us about Food Forward and how they planned to address that. They've been around since 2009. Jill, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell us about Food Forward. Certainly. Well, it's an award-winning nonprofit. Uh, The main office is based out of North Hollywood. We serve basically all of Southern California with our programs. We are a nonprofit organization that recover fresh produce from farms, backyards, ranches, farmers markets, and wholesale. And then we donate that directly to hunger relief and community support organizations. That's wonderful. And what are some statistics about the work that you're doing? In the United States, on average, about 40% of the food that we produce is actually wasted, unfortunately, whether it's in the field, whether it's in processing, distribution, at the retail level. Also, if you think about the history of our area with all of the orchards and the ranches and all of the agricultural, I think we're ranked 11th most agricultural county in the nation, we have an abundance. And so Food Forward saw this, our executive director back in 2008, kind of around the time of the financial crisis, was recognizing that there was this abundance there, but yet there were still people who were in need. Our organization was set up to address that. Since then, we have developed three programs, like I mentioned, the Backyard Harvest Program, Farmer's Market, and Wholesale Recovery. And to date, the organization has recovered over 44 million pounds of fresh produce, and we donate that for free to many, many support organizations that most people are familiar with here in Ventura County, including Food Share, Ventura Catholic Charities, the Rescue Mission, lots of uh, pantries that are operated out of different churches. What does Food Forward need help with from the community? How can they help you? Well, we always like to have volunteers come out. We can have volunteers in our Backyard Harvest program as young as five years old, and it's great for families. You're outside, you're on a a farm or a ranch, you're getting to learn about our agricultural history. The Farmer's Market program, we need to be 12 years or older. And then wholesale, we don't really have a volunteer program for that just yet, but it's coming soon. I recommend that people go onto our website. They can go to www.com foodforward.org. There's an opportunity to volunteer. There's a calendar and you can search for events based on your zip code. In addition to volunteers, we're always looking for people to donate. If you know of anybody who has produce, fresh produce, whether it's citrus, avocados, if you're a farmer, if you're a gardener and you have abundance and you want to donate it, you can contact us calling the fruit line at 805-409-4760 
or again, go onto our website and we'd be happy to, to work with you. Our nonprofit spotlight today is Food Forward. To learn more, go online to foodforward.org. Do you ever question if your investments are right for you? Do you own any annuities, retirement accounts, or have other money you want help with? Have you ever wondered what your advisor is making or how they get paid? Get a free second opinion. Talk with Michael Anderson, certified financial planner. Call his answering service today, 805-665-3767. Leave a message and get a call back immediately. 805-665-3767 or visit him online, marinantha.com, M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com. Michael Anderson is local and fiduciary. No commissions, no gimmicks. Call and leave a message today. 805-665-3767. Get ready to take some notes. It's time for the two-minute drill with Michael Anderson on Big Money in the 805. Two-minute drill. Grab a piece of paper and a pencil. It's time for today's two-minute drill brought to you by Spanish Hills Country Club. Taste the elegance. Golf, athletic, and social memberships. Visit SpanishHillsCC.com or call Cindy, 805-388-5000. Today's principle is all about guidance. We all need help at times, and with financial matters, many of us realize we need some guidance. Here's my question. Where do you go when you are looking for guidance with financial matters? Do you go to a book, a blog, maybe a podcast, or find a TV program? Do you go online and maybe you talk with a family member or talk to a coworker, or possibly you have a financial advisor that you ask? All of these are possible and might be a good fit, but here is my thought on this. Wherever you go to get your advice from, it's only good advice if it meets three criteria. Number one, it has to be consistent with your values. Number two, it has to be in line and appropriate for the goals you're working toward. And number three, it has to provoke action. Let me give you a few examples to add some perspective. When we talk about values, if you know you want to invest in socially responsible companies, yet your 401k might be invested in tobacco and gambling companies, it might not be the perfect fit for your values. It's not consistent. When we talk about provoking action, if your advisor says, hey, it's time to rebalance the portfolio or it's time to contribute more money to your 401k, but you don't take any action on that or follow the recommendation, then what good is the guidance that you're getting? And finally, when we talk about being in line with your goals, if you're a cautious and conservative investor and yet your IRA has equities and stock mutual funds, your money is not in line with the appropriate goals you have. Today's principle is seeking guidance. Wherever you get your financial guidance from, make sure it passes these three criteria. It's consistent with your values, in line and appropriate with your goals, and it provokes you to take action. If you need additional help, you can go to napfa.org to find an advisor near you, or you can contact me directly. I'd be happy to discuss this with you. Go to my website, marinantha.com, M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com. You're tuned in to Big Money in the 805 with Michael Anderson. Now it's time for Michael to go to the mailbag and answer some questions from listeners. Mailbag, we answer your questions about money, Wall Street, and local issues. Brought to you by AllocationLink.com, investment management that is low cost, smart, 
and automatic. Learn more at allocationlink.com. Robert from Carpinteria asks, I have an old 401k and two IRAs. What's the next step to consolidate everything? Well, Robert, what you want to do is take a look at those three investments and your 401k, it's with an old company. You're not working there anymore. You don't have access. You don't have as much control and it's harder to kind of understand what's going on with that. Once you leave that company, you have the ability to move that into a new IRA or the new 401k at your new company. Same with the two IRAs you have. If you're not getting any help with those and you need some guidance, you can consolidate all those into one IRA, work with a financial advisor to get that help. I'd be happy to discuss this with you. You can go to maranatha.com and we can get that set up very easily. Now we go to Linda from Fillmore. My husband does not want to pay for a trust, but my friends say we need a trust. How much does it cost? Where should we go? Well, for a trust, it's very important to have a trust, have your estate plans in order. You can find an estate planning attorney to help you out. I do have a few that I can recommend, and it runs anywhere from $1,000 up to $3,000, depending on the complexity and what you're trying to have accomplished. That's what you should be looking at. And certainly something that I would say definitely needs to be done. In a show coming up soon, I'll have an estate planning attorney here in the studio, and you can learn more there, but I wouldn't wait too long on getting that trust done. And the final question from the mailbag comes from Jason. My company doesn't offer a 401k, so I don't have a retirement account. What do you recommend that I do? Jason, you definitely want to have a retirement account. You can get some tax benefits. You're contributing money pre-tax for that retirement account. My website will allow you to start an IRA. You can start it with as little as $250, make regular contributions, and it will be working for you. You can go to maranatha.com or you can hit me up. We'll be able to get that started for you. If you have a question for the mailbag, submit it online at maranatha.com. Well, that does it for our show today. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out on iTunes, Big Money in the 805. All previous shows are also on Maranatha.com. Special thanks to American Pacific Mortgage and our friends at Geico Local Office. If you need any help with financial matters, you can always contact me at Maranatha.com. Leave us a message on my answering service, 805-665-3767. Have a great week. Join us again next time. Hi, this is Michael Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. I've dedicated the past 12 years to researching different investment ideas. There are no guarantees when investing, but with a little help, you can find the right approach. I have built AllocationLink.com specifically for you. AllocationLink.com is investment management made simple, smart, and low cost. AllocationLink.com can have your account set up in less than 10 minutes. You don't need to have a million dollars. You don't need to have $100,000. You can get started with as little as $250 today. The secret to investing is regular contributions and giving it time to grow. Please check out my website online. I think it will be a great resource for you. AllocationLink.com is investment management that is smart, low cost, and automatic. Please visit AllocationLink.com to learn more. Or you can leave me a message at 805 665 3767.